Welcome to Dig Deep, the mining podcast. In this podcast, we discuss, educate and talk about industry news and hot topics, company reviews and live interviews with mining professionals and leading figures in the mining industry. Introducing your host, Rob Tyson, founder and director of Mining International. With a career covering nearly two decades, Mining International partners with new and junior miners and larger predominant players in the market. With no further ado, here is your host, Rob Tyson. Hi, mining community. Welcome again to another episode of the Dig Deep, the Mining podcast. And today's guest is James Campbell, who's the MD of Botswana Diamonds, um, who, are a, who are a diamond exploration and project development company who hold exploration license in Botswana and South Africa. James has spent over 30 years in the diamond industry in a variety of roles, which obviously we'll cover, cover that shortly in this podcast. Um, I'm really interested in doing uh, this podcast, especially with the, the content and information that James is going to provide around diamonds, um, because it's a sector that I haven't actually recruited in um, or know much about. And I'm sure many of our listeners probably know little, don't know, won't know too much and probably know little about diamonds. So I think a lot of us are going to learn something from from this podcast. So I want to hand it, hand over to you. So I want to welcome James Campbell. How are you doing, James? Very good, Rob. Lovely to chat to you this afternoon. Yeah, and I'm obviously I'm in the UK and you're uh, you're in uh, South Africa. Absolutely, September yeah. is the only month of spring in South Africa. We go from winter to summer very, very quickly. <laughs> right, and I was just saying earlier. Uh, obviously, I'm in the UK and we just left the summer, um, but today it seems it is um, it's warm as well. I'm, I'm, I've got my shorts, shorts and t-shirt on in September, which generally, is, generally speaking, isn't. Uh, isn't the the month that you would have shorts and t-shirt on especially in the uk so yeah. um right let's uh kick off with this i want to uh, understand a little bit more about obviously your background from when you sort of um graduated and um if you can tell the audience a little bit about how you've um how you've developed your career to where you are today i've then got some questions around the industry um and then we're um then we talk about a little bit about botswana diamonds uh before uh before concluding. So can you tell us a bit about uh, your background and um, how you got to where you are today? Robert, actually all started at school. Uh, I went to Framlingham College in Suffolk as as a boarder. My father was in the Royal Air Force, uh, so he moved around Europe an awful lot. And when I was doing my A-levels of maths, uh, geography and chemistry, the school encouraged you to do a minority subject. So I did a minority subject in geology, uh, and I found that actually more interesting than my Uh, three A-levels. So following uh, uh, getting my A-levels, I went to the Imperial College of Science and Technology in London uh, and read a degree in mining and exploration geology. And in my very final year, you were were encouraged to go and do uh, an honours project somewhere, which would either be mapping on some remote Hebridean island, uh, which would be cold and windswept and probably quite wet, or or finding some job employment. And I was very fortunate uh, to be employed by De Beers uh, at their Venetia mine prospect. It's now a mine, and in fact, the mine is now going underground. And and I spent a wonderful three months uh, logging various kimberlite fasces and other things in the far northern Transvaal of South Africa. So when I graduated, uh, I was delighted to be able to be offered a job uh, in diamond exploration by De Beers and 
In fact, I spent just under 22 years at De Beers, initially starting in diamond exploration. Uh, and myself and my team were involved in the discovery of three diamond mines uh, in the northern province uh, of South Africa. Uh, going through the various ranks, as one does in a, in a large corporate, uh, with probably a couple of notable appointments. I was very fortunate to be the executive chairman, Nicky Oppenheimer's uh, personal assistant. In fact, his first personal uh, assistant for three years. So uh, that gave me a very good insight into uh, how to run a company, uh, corporate management and the such like. And before I left De Beers, my final job uh, was general manager responsible for resource development and advanced exploration for De Beers' global activities. The diamond exploration bug and diamond development bug has actually never left. So since leaving De Beers, uh, I joined uh, Dr. John Teeling in African Diamonds. Uh, and you know, a couple of notable things about African Diamonds is that we returned 25 times to our original shareholders. Uh, and there I joined uh, my old mentor, Alex Van Sale, uh, who was the technical director. And uh, alongside De Beers and then uh, alongside Lucara Diamond Corporation, we developed what was now is now known uh, as the Kuroi Mine, a fabulous diamond mine, host to many of the world's largest diamonds in, in northeast Botswana. Lucara uh, had a larger checkbook. Uh, they bought out uh, African Diamonds, and they're now uh, the wholly owned uh, company owning Karoe. I, I joined Lucara for a while. I then joined Rockwell Diamonds uh, as their chief executive officer, uh, where we were probably the largest uh, largest alluvial diamond miner at the lowest cost in the world. Uh, I also led a company called West Africa Diamonds PLC, also with Dr. John Teeling as chairman. Uh, and there we did a reverse takeover of Stellar Diamonds. And Stellar Diamonds last year was bought out by Newfield Resources, developing diamond deposits in Sierra Leone and Guinea. Uh, after, after leaving Rockwell Diamonds, I rejoined my old chairman, uh, Dr. John Cheeling, uh, into Botswana Diamonds PLC, uh, which is a London AIM and Botswana Stock Exchange listed company uh, with projects in Botswana, South Africa and Zimbabwe. So that's me. That's you, yeah. <laughs> it's funny. I was obviously, obviously listening to, obviously listening to your um, history and your career, and I thought, I thought to myself, you've obviously been in diamonds for over thirty years. Have you at any time? And obviously, diamonds must be a passion to you, and mining in diamonds. Have you ever thought about any other commodities? It, Rob, it's a very interesting question. In my spare time, yeah. uh, I was uh, chairman of the Joburg Ballet for okay. 15 years, almost yeah. 15 years. Uh, and that's a, a non-profit organization. Yeah. Uh, and that's chiefly because my, my wife was a ballerina uh, and now a ballet teacher. My daughter danced there for a short period of time, is now a ballet teacher. Uh, I'm chairman of a leadership development group called Common Purpose. In fact, with its centre actually in the UK, it's a wonderful group whose uh, centrepiece is all around cultural intelligence uh, and leadership beyond authority. Very passionate about that too, uh, and I think I'm coming up for 19 years and eight months or nine months as such. I was one of the founding uh, directors, and then uh, during my sojourn with uh, Dr. John Teeling and African Diamonds, uh, we floated a gold company uh, called Swala Resources. 
uh, that went on to become a company called Concordia Resources. And I think that's now kind of split. Uh, and one of them is called Marillion and the other one is called Kaizen, I think, because I, I still have the shares. But my passion has always been in the exploration and development of diamond deposits and in particular in Africa, because that's equally my passion. Yeah. So what's about diamonds that you actually like? I, I think, uh, gosh, that's a very good question, Rob. <laughs> uh, on, on an emotional level, yeah. uh, I'll answer it first, is that I think diamonds represent all that is good in humanity. Okay. It is the ultimate uh, gift of love, uh, the ultimate expression of love. And in itself, it actually has no value whatsoever. Uh, but it has huge value in that it does represent that ultimate store of love. Secondly, I don't think there's actually anything more beautiful than a, a cut polished diamond, uh, especially cut polished diamonds, uh, which are flawless or which have a, a different color attached to it. So those are from an emotional perspective. From a technical perspective, uh, the assessment, uh, exploration and assessment of diamond resources is probably one of the most technically challenging areas in any form of commodity or, or resource development when you can compare it to things like coal and gold and, and bauxite. I'm not trying to demean those in any way. Uh, there is a level of uh, additional technical sophistication and complexity in diamonds and you are required particularly in terms of stock exchange rules and other things to be very very deeply experienced uh, to work as a competent person and actually more importantly for us uh, to be successful in what you do yeah from a technical perspective then what is what is really technical about obviously trying to extract diamonds then that may that is probably different than say other commodities, whether it's base, precious metals, etc. Well, in fact, it, with diamonds, you have three different variables which you have to measure. With most other minerals, it typically is two. And the two are, of most of the other minerals are, are volume or tons, call it what you will, uh, the mass of the deposit itself. And the other is grade. Uh, if I use gold, for ex example, you will have a deposit of x uh, grams per ton you'll go to your newspaper and it'll tell you what the price of gold happens to be and you can make your own forecast in terms of where the gold price is going to be with diamonds of course you have tons in terms of uh, the volume within a kimberlite pipe or the secondary alluvial deposit you have grade uh, and in the diamond world we measure that in in terms of carats per hundred tons and a carat is actually uh, 0.2 of a gram and comes from the old carob seed, uh, which is found in Kimberley in South Africa. So you're looking at parts per billion or uh, in rare cases, parts per million. And then the third layer, which is which adds the additional complexity, is the diamond price itself, which is dollar per carat. You know, in some deposits, uh, for example, the uh, Let's say mine in uh, Lesotho, you, would, you could get over $3,000 a carat because these would typically be large and, and very, very high quality stones. Or you could go to the other end of the extreme, uh, for example, in uh, Marangi in eastern uh, Botswana, where you would get $15 to $20 per carat because the diamonds tend to be small and generally poor quality. And the only way of assessing the diamond value is taking a large enough sample and selling the diamonds. Got you. Got you. So obviously a 
big price variance there, I see. Mm. Of course, yeah. you know, if you wanted to buy your, your missus the best quality diamond, it would look magnificent, but it would cost a lot of money. Yeah. But if you're prepared to go for a kind of a brown thing, it might not cost so much money. Yeah. yeah. One question, and I don't know if this is a stupid question to ask, but I'm going to ask it anyway. What are diamonds used for? Is it only used for sort of jewellery purposes? Or is there other things that you can use diamonds for? Oh, no, there's a huge market in, in diamonds. Uh, obviously, from a profitability perspective, yeah. uh, the, the focus is very much on, on gem diamonds, uh, diamonds that would go in, into jewellery. Uh, but there is a very, very large business in cutting tools, you know, for where you put diamond dust. Typically, these would be uh, synthetic diamonds, whether it be to, to cut rock, to cut glass, uh, at the bottom of your core drilling rig or your percussion drilling rig, the uh, the drill bit would typically be made of, of, of synthetic diamonds. And what I have been reading about recently as well is that maybe the next uh, development in conductors for uh, computers would be in diamonds as well. So there are many, many different applications that diamond can have. But in, in our world, particularly uh, from a natural diamond perspective, uh, and I work only in the natural space, not in the synthetic space. Our target market is very, very much so uh, the jewellery space. Yeah. Okay. No worries. And I suppose with the the supply and demand, how has the supply and demand been for the last ten years? Um, and what is the future sort of supply and demand likely to be? Um, do you have sort of big peaks and troughs like other commodities, or is it pretty more consistent? Um, or is it a different, or is it on a different life cycle to say some of the other commodities out there? Robert, it's a very, very good question. Is that uh, if, if I try and address your last point first? Is yeah. yes, uh, the diamond market is is cyclical, uh, but the diamond market is not one market. It is many different markets. If I just look at the two end members in the diamond market, if I firstly look at the large, better quality stones where consumers are going to be spending hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not millions of dollars for a stone. These would be obviously your ultra high net worth individuals and where changes in the global economic climate would not hurt them so much. So the volatility in those kind of stones is, is much, much less. Going to the back end of the market, uh, where you're looking at smaller uh, pieces of jewellery, where people are saving up their three or four months salary for an engagement ring or, or something like that, that is a lot more volatile because they would have mortgages to pay for, kids in, in school, uh, all sorts of different things they would have to pay for. So the pricing in those categories is very volatile. In terms of uh, how it follows the overall market is diamonds do tend to drop in price very quickly following a, a global shock, uh, but they do tend to react actually very positively uh, in, in the exact kind of opposite scenario. I just want to kind of digress a little bit into the market itself now, which has happened over the past year. Uh, De Beers launched the Lightbox initiative last year, uh, which uh, was all about manufacturing, selling uh, synthetic diamonds. Up until that point, there was always a business in synthetic diamonds, but it was always on the periphery on the business. But De Beers putting their name attached to it has created uh, some tension, competitive tension in the market. Uh, and this, is, this tension has taken place already 
in markets such as sapphire, pearl, uh, and, and on all those other kind of uh, precious stones as well. So it is something which we would have expected. And the impact of that is that the smaller, lower quality diamonds, uh, natural diamonds, uh, have fallen in price significantly, up to 30% or more, actually over the past year, as some consumers are, are switching into synthetics, which are a lot cheaper uh, than, than the natural diamonds itself. But the coloured stones and large stones have, have maintained uh, their market. Now, put that into an overall picture of, of the supply-demand situation too as well, which is a, the overall strategic picture, that no large-scale diamond mine has been found for the last 10 years or so. Uh, the only one, in fact, was the Karoe mine, which I mentioned earlier, uh, which African diamonds developed uh, alongside Lucara. So from a supply-side perspective, natural diamonds are beginning to taper off. Uh, the larger mines are getting deeper. They're becoming more expensive. Uh, there's not there's very little money for exploration. Uh, people funding what I'm looking for today, uh, even De Beers, which used to spend a hundred million dollars plus a year, uh, are now spending a fraction of money on exploration. And as it takes about 10 years from discovery through to mining, uh, at least in the next 10 years time, from what we know of, of course, in the public domain, there are no new diamond mines coming on board. Look, then you look at the demand situation. 50% uh, of the world's diamonds are typically sold in America. And 50% of those are typically sold between Thanksgiving and New Year. It's quite remarkable. Now, as we all know, the American economy uh, under President Trump has done remarkably well. We can say all sorts of things, but the economy is is, is holding up well. And, and that's good for us, us diamond people, because it gives a strong, robust level of diamond demand, but typically at the bottom end of the market. At the other end of the market, you've had the growth in, in China uh, and in India and the Far East, uh, which is both at the lower end and at the top end. So one is seeing a, a consistent year-on-year uh, -year gradual growth. Uh, in the diamond market where people's aspiration is to spend four months or more uh, of their salary on a, a diamond engagement ring. And as the economies in those countries grow, uh, the demand for those kind of diamonds grow at the same time. So you do see uh, a widening supply demand gap. And the result of that is gradual overall improvement in diamond prices over time. But of course, uh, with short-term volatility, uh, as I mentioned a moment ago. Okay. Okay. So, um, so would you say the the demand for diamonds is down to really the spending power of consumers? Very much so. It, it, okay. it is exactly that because yeah. in, it is seen as a discretionary purchase. Yeah. You know, people, you know, we are competing for people a nice car, going on a holiday, a, a lifestyle experience. Etc. And that's why we we particularly market that natural is good, natural is better. Why would you want to go and buy a, a a synthetic stone made in an industrial press, which represents love? For goodness sake, it can't yeah, yeah. be any further than truth. You want something that was created in the bowels of the earth, you know, three and a half billion years ago, and you want to know where it came from and all those kind of good things. Yes, so it is a discretionary purchase, absolutely. And the diamond market has to compete. Uh, with other discretionary purchases too. Yeah, and I want to go back to more of a technical uh, technical question. What's the difference between sort of mining diamonds and say mining gold? The actual um, the way that you actually mine 
mine diamonds. Is there, is there much difference in the way that you uh, go out and mine, mine the product? No, Rob. Uh, uh, the difference would be in the processing side. There are okay. open cast diamond mines. Yeah. There are underground diamond mines. And, and there are basically two kinds of diamond deposit, which will determine how would you would mine it. The first kind is called a kimberlite, uh, named after Kimberley in the uh, northern Cape of South Africa. And essentially, a kimberlite is an extinct volcanic plug, uh, which sampled... Uh, carbon beneath the diamond stability field uh, where carbon exists actually as diamonds. There are about 6,000 kimberlites in the world, 600 of which contain diamonds, of which 60 have been or are diamond mines. And when you start, and if it's near the surface, you have a standard open cast operation. And as you get deeper, you would start to look at uh, sublevel caving or, or block caving, other mining techniques which are used in many, many, many other commodities. From a processing perspective, it is slightly different because what you're trying to recover is obviously you want to recover all of your diamonds, starting from uh, the largest diamond to the smallest diamond. And you want to recover it by absolutely minimizing diamond breakage because yeah. there's nothing more criminal than breaking a thousand carat stone in two to two five hundred carat stone. So you have a gradual process of liberation, uh, screening, concentration and then finally some form of uh, x-ray or, or tomographic recovery to actually release the diamonds uh, from the ground mass itself. What is really quite nice about the diamond processing is there are no chemicals used and it does have a very low energy footprint too. Okay, okay, that that's interesting for some of our uh, obviously technical listeners, uh, obviously mine engineering and processing. So uh, yeah, no, that's interesting to know. Um, Right, we'll just uh, go on now to speak more about um, Botswana Diamonds. Um, so just wonder if you can give us an overview of, um, of the company and some of the, the projects that you're currently involved in. Absolutely, Rob. Botswana Diamonds has got, uh, is working in Southern Africa uh, and focusing on Botswana, South Africa uh, and Zimbabwe. Uh, we typically focus in brownfield development areas uh, where we are looking uh, to discover or re-evaluate kimberlites, uh, which were discovered some time ago. But because of new technology, uh, we are able to uh, assess the results in a different way and they could possibly be more economic. If I cover the kind of different countries uh, and the different project areas, uh, starting probably from the least active area to the most active area. We have a, a joint venture with Vast Resources PLC, another London uh, AIM-listed company in Zimbabwe. Uh, and, and this joint venture has two legs. One leg is to develop a concession within the very famous Marangi diamond fields. And the second one is for general diamond exploration uh, across the whole of Zimbabwe. We are yet to, we, uh, when I talk we here, uh, Vast and, and Botswana Diamonds are yet to conclude final terms with the government uh, of Zimbabwe. We hope it is imminent uh, and then we can really get cracking. We've done the conceptual studies. Uh, we've done the, the field visits. We've planned exactly what we want to do. And we're just standing at the kind of starting line waiting for that gun to go so we can get going. Then moving on to Botswana, where we are also listed uh, on the Botswana Stock Exchange. Uh, we have uh, two major ventures there. Uh, the first one is the Sunland Minerals uh, venture, which was for some period of time uh, partnered with Al Rosa, 
who is a, a major Russian uh, explorer and developer, the largest actually in the world. And we're currently in advanced discussions uh, with another major producer to take over from Al Rosa, essentially uh, walk in their footsteps. But meanwhile, we are exploring and we're focusing here very much on the central Kalahari region of, of Botswana, uh, close to uh, Gem Diamond's old mine of Gargu. They've now sold it to a local grouping and Petra's KX36 discovery. And then secondly is the Maibui joint venture, uh, which is joint venture with BCL, which was the largest, second largest mining company in Botswana, is sadly in liquidation. So we're caught up in the whole of their uh, liquidation uh, uh, workings, but we're hoping to be able to release it from that fairly shortly because that project itself had some very tantalizing microdiamond results and we can't, can't wait to roll up our sleeves, get on with it and restart uh, the exploration process. And then moving into South Africa, we uh, Botswana Diamonds has a joint venture with a group called uh, Vatomi Mining Pty Limited, who have a number of projects across the country. Uh, again, starting from kind of the bottom rank moving upwards, uh, there's uh, the, the Palmitkat Kimberlites, which are about 50 kilometers where I'm sitting from at the moment. Uh, it's right next door to a currently uh, operating mine, uh, and it has not been evaluated through the lens of new technology. So we would like to do exactly that. Then there is the Moikluf Kimberlite, which is on the border of Botswana, uh, almost adjacent to uh, De Beers' old The Oaks a Diamond Mine. Again, uh, that's a project which was looked at uh, in, in the mid-80s, and and, and I was involved with the discovery and the evaluation of that in uh, 1988. And there's a lot of work that still needs to be done now. Uh, then we move on to the Free State Kimberlites, uh, which were mined in the 1880s, would you believe? And, and we re rediscovered these not by using any new technology, uh, but by visiting the Africana Museum uh, and other archives in Bloemfontein and Kimberley to look at old producers back in that time. And we found that these Kimberlites were old producers. And from what we can see, very, very little work has actually been done on them. And then probably our flagship project uh, across all three countries uh, in South Africa is the Thorny River project, where we're busy exploring uh, an echelon suite of, of Kimberlite dikes and blows. Uh, and we're in the throes of uh, being awarded a mining permit uh, adjacent to the iconic Marsfontein mine, uh, which had a payback of three and a half days. Right, okay. <laughs> that's, that's exceptional. I don't know of any actually other, Rob, which had a payback of such a, uh, <laughs> no. a short period of time. And it would be of no surprise to you that we would be looking to kind of develop uh, some of the, the residual dumps and gravels uh, immediately surrounding Marsfontein. Yeah, certainly, certainly. It seems you're very busy and you've got a lot of things going on. Um, I was then going to ask another question. Um, I mean, what other jurisdictions are you sort of exploring and wanting to explore, whether that's in Africa or even outside of Africa? Uh, at the moment, you know, our board is very firmly focused on Southern Africa. Yeah. Now, if I look at the three countries where I operate, South Africa, uh, Botswana and Zimbabwe, and of course, we would look at Lesotho and, and Eswatini, uh, which are uh, within that kind of general environment. And of course, Namibia. Uh, and, and why that is the case is that 
these are all relatively short flying distance uh, yeah. from where I am in Johannesburg uh, or, or a very short flight. Our business model, in, but maybe if I step back and tell you a little bit about our business model, yeah. which will help actually answer it. Our business model is such that I'm the only permanent employee uh, in Botswana Diamonds, and I recruit uh, part-time people, consultants, contractors, call it what you will, as and when uh, projects develop. Uh, we don't have an office. You know, I'm, we're having this conversation from my home office, so it absolutely minimizes the cost to uh, shareholders. Uh, I drive my own four-wheel drive vehicle uh, to these itself. And, and, and I feel, and I'm very passionate about this point, that you know, we are looking at high-risk money going into diamond exploration, and you know, it, it's people's hard-earned money. So the least I can do is to put as high a possible percentage of that directly in the ground and, and not have to pay for kind of uh, peripheral issues. And so Southern Africa, one can manage from that particular perspective. But not only that, we also believe, uh, and this is probably the primary reason, that Southern Africa is the most prospective region of the world for new diamond discoveries. And yes, from a political risk perspective, you've got Botswana on the one side, uh, they call it the Switzerland of Africa, very low political risk on a par with you know the best countries in the world and on the other hand you have zimbabwe yeah. which is slowly improving got a long way to go and then somewhere in the middle you've got south africa which is also beginning to improve so we understand the jurisdictions actually very well and in fact next week uh, there is the african mining summit in in Khabarone. Uh, i'm chairing the ministerial session uh, with half a dozen ministers of mines across africa so if I, we were to look anywhere else outside Southern Africa, I would imagine it would be Africa. Uh, but having been blessed working with De Beers for so many years, I've worked in nearly all the diamond jurisdictions across the world. Yeah, okay. So where else in the world, apart from obviously where you are already um, exploring and, and involved in projects, is there, I suppose, a, high, a higher concentration or a good concentration of of diamonds? Well, the two major countries outside of Southern Africa uh, would be Russia and Canada. Okay. Uh, Russia is, is obviously host to uh, Al Rosa, which is the, the first or second uh, largest diamond miner, depending on whether you look at carrots uh, or value. Uh, Canada has a number uh, of producers. De Beers is a producer. Uh, the Mountain Province uh, joint venture is a producer. And they have a very active uh, exploration environment, chiefly because uh, the Toronto Stock Exchange is, is one of the better stock exchanges uh, to raise money for diamond development. But there are also diamond exploration and development projects in Australia, in India, uh, in, in South America, uh, particularly Brazil and, and Venezuela. Then as you go into uh, Africa, north of Southern Africa, uh, the Democratic Republic of Congo and Angola uh, are very big, as is West Africa, uh, Sierra Leone uh, and Guinea. Okay. Um, one question I've just thought of, in terms of recruitment and in terms of growing, growing the industry within diamonds, how... How hard is it to recruit people for certain for certain roles, especially if you're looking for specialists with diamond experience? If if there is only, I suppose, a quite small amount of a small, uh, a, a few number of players in the industry. Um, I imagine, obviously, as companies 
grow and as projects grow you need more and more people i imagine in terms of recruitment you have to sort of have a sort of uh, i suppose a, a, a training system in place where you are bringing people into the industry to specialize in diamonds i i think there may be two answers to that question yeah. Uh, like any mining environment, many of the uh, the jobs would be commoditized. Now, if you're a finance specialist, IT specialist, yeah. HR specialist, especially around those support functions, when you go to the very detailed technical design in particular, yes, you know, the design of a kimberlite diamond mine, uh, the, the process metallurgy, uh, the geology uh, around those kimberlite diamonds, diamond mines, you, you would definitely be challenged to try and find the best people in, in that work. Having worked in the industry for over uh, well over 30 years now, as you mentioned in the introduction, uh, you build up a very, very good network yeah. uh, of people who you can call upon uh, to look at specific aspects of the work itself. Yeah. I think overlying that is mines are typically found in very remote areas. Uh, so they're areas which, you know, some sometimes don't have cell phone coverage, uh, for example, they're either very, very hot or very, very cold. Uh, you, you will have, of course, have accommodation, but there might not be uh, nice restaurants, movie places, etc., where you have to go. So you have to pay a premium uh, for people working in remote areas. But the most difficult role actually to find, in my view, is actually a, a successful diamond explorer. Now, you can get successful diamond geologists who can work on your mine, who are very good at logging the core, interpreting the three-dimensional model, and then supporting the mining engineers and metallurgists in order to mine and then recover the diamonds. Uh, but exploration is a very unique skill in that every day is different. And it, it's not just going in the field, taking samples, looking at the geology. You have to be a ferocious reader of everything that actually happened, going back even 150 years. You have to be a ferocious networker to find out why did people really leave a project? Because often the publicly reported version will be very different uh, from the is. privately reported version. And then you have to put that context together with uh, what's happened in the past, together with brand new technology, because there's some fascinating stuff going uh, in terms of, of geophysical and uh, airborne and remote sensing technology to find that unique uh, pin in a haystack. And putting that all together and so people finding people like that who have a track record of doing it is really quite difficult yeah now i can imagine i can imagine and i suppose also what what i meant by the the, the question i asked is if if you've got obviously like mine engineers for instance and they obviously when you when you get into diamonds it's a probably a commodity that you actually stay in for your entire career so as the workforce gets older do you have trouble people attracting people into the diamond industry? I, th I think uh, the, the, the industry has problems attracting people into itself, the mining yeah, yeah. industry. Understand Actually, that. more than anything else, because you know, people want to work in cities, they want to work in IT, they want to work in finance, uh, they want to do things a lot quicker than possibly you, know, you or I did when we were a little bit younger. And, and that is the uh, mining is seen as a dirty industry yeah. by many. I'll give you an example. I, I visited my alma mater uh, a few months ago, actually in June, uh, the Imperial College Royal School of Mines. When I graduated there over 30 years ago, it was a premier mining school in the world. Anglo-American, De Beers, 
from South Africa went there on the milk ground and recruited every single year, five or 10 mining engineers, geologists, metallurgists. It is now, uh, it's now obviously, it's still part of Imperial College and Imperial College is one of the top 10 universities uh, across Europe, uh, particularly in the science and technology. But the people are not going into industry anymore. They're going mm. in to do environmental stuff, research, etc. I asked, well, how many people actually go and do the kind of stuff that I did or go onto the mines or something like that? And it's a tiny, tiny handful. Yeah. And that's a reflection on the change in employment patterns uh, across the world. It's a reflection on where Royal School of Mines is at the moment, too, as well. But it's a reflection on uh, that youngsters don't really want to go and work on mines. That's yeah. the bigger problem, I think. Yeah, no, yeah, certainly. Certainly. I mean, obviously, here, here in the UK, you've obviously got the Imperial College and also you've got the Campbell School of Mines. And the no numbers are dropping each year of, of people going into a mining-related subject. Um, and that's happening all across the world. It's not just happening in the UK with a limited, obviously, mining industry, but it's happening all over the world, and obviously, especially in Australia and even Canada, um, not too sure about America, but I imagine that would be quite similar. Um, it does have an image, an image issue, and I do ask that on some of these other podcasts that I've have um, that I've produced, and ask that, and there is an image. So I wondered how how that can change, or, or what do you see can change and make people, or not make people? How would you attract? people into the industry or even attract people to go and study at any of these top top universities um, to go and study a mine engineering degree or a geology degree um, or even a processing a, a processing or uh, processing degree but obviously focusing on um, mining well, I, I've been involved with two initiatives in, in that respect. Uh, one about a, a month ago, uh, the Geological Society of South Africa uh, held a, a three-day workshop uh, with people like myself uh, talking about our experiences in the industry. And I gave a, a, a rather tongue-in-cheek presentation on comparing the role of a, an exploration geologist and a major uh, compared to a junior. And we probably had about 100 people in the audience uh, various graduates and people like that, and, and they were able to listen to us and, and have lots of interactive sessions. Uh, and I've got to report that flowing back from that, there was very strong interest from the local universities here in South Africa, uh, the University of the Witwatersrand, University of Pretoria, University of Cape Town, all of which uh, are in the Global 500 uh, universities. And then uh, this uh, earlier this year, and two years ago, uh, this, this year hosted by Debswana, uh, the joint venture between the government of Botswana and De Beers, uh, they also had a, a, a two-day workshop uh, with current diamond explorers like myself. Uh, they brought out the, the discoverer of a RAPA uh, mine, which is, uh, was discovered 52 years ago, and they brought him out 50 years ago to give a, a, a historical perspective of discovery. But the, the final year students of the University uh, of Botswana and the Botswana Institute of Technology all attended that. So we had about a dozen people like myself and a little bit younger and a little bit older, but probably about 150 students were there. So industry uh, and the, the professional institutions and, and companies uh, who are led, you know, uh, all get involved with trying to find, uh, you know, the next 
Manfred Marx or uh, the next really big uh, name in, in Diamond Discovery. Absolutely. Mm. Okay. All right. I want to um, sort of conclude this and wonder if you can tell us what the, the future outlook is for Botswana Diamonds um, and what what your what your company's intentions are moving forward. I think, there, uh, Rob, there are three major areas we're going to be focused on. The first one is going to very clearly focusing on uh, the Marsfontein mining permit and development of the Thorny River project area as they're one and the same in the northern province of South Africa. The Thorny River uh, and Marsfontein mining permit in particular uh, will start to generate cash and will enable us to uh, continue funding our other project areas. The second one uh, is in Botswana, uh, where we continue to work with the liquidators of Maibui uh, to try and unravel that. And, and we hope it won't be before long uh, that we will be able to unravel that and commence uh, exploration on that very, very exciting project. And then thirdly, I, I imagine it won't be long as well uh, where we will conclude terms with the government of Zimbabwe and we can really get cracking on that exciting Marangi deposit in eastern Zimbabwe. Those are the three major areas of highlight. And of course, as I mentioned earlier, there's lots of other work we're doing too in Botswana Diamonds. Yeah, certainly. Certainly, um, you gave a really good a good account of uh, at the beginning of what you're involved in. So, um, yeah, I'm sure you're going to be busy for the, the foreseeable future. Um, really, uh, thank you very much, James, for taking the time to, uh, to do this podcast. I think our listeners would have got a lot of, uh, lot of information um, around, obviously, diamond mining. Um, because I, I imagine a lot of them wouldn't have worked on a diamond mine and may not know much about it. So I really appreciate your time in uh, providing that content. If our um, audience wants to uh, contact, you, contact you and ask you any questions, how can they go about doing that? Well, my contact details are on our corporate website. Uh, my contact details are at the bottom of, of every press release uh, that we put out. And we typically put out uh, a press release every month to six weeks uh, and I'm very available to, to chat over the phone or or by email very happy to do so okay and are you in, on any social media platforms I am on uh, Twitter uh, under the the, the, uh, the handle Botswana Diamond uh, we have a, a Facebook page uh, Botswana Diamonds uh, we have a, a YouTube site and, and look for the uh, Botswana Diamonds playlist. Uh, we're also on LinkedIn uh, under the Botswana Diamond banner too as well. Yes, it, Rob, it's a very interesting point that, you know, if, if I don't put things on social media, it doesn't happen. Yeah. Uh, so you'll find this week, for example, I've spent three days on our uh, Thorny River and, and Marsfontein uh, mining permit area. And you'll see, I hope, uh, lots of interesting photographs and uh, and commentary on the on all of that social media in terms of what we are doing. Yeah, and before we started this podcast, you did actually mention that you uh, you've done quite a few podcasts, probably as many as I've actually done myself. So um, again, I suppose people can search for some podcasts that you've done you've uh, you've done over the past couple of years so um again I, I imagine you can probably google that or or do you know what uh, platforms your podcast could be on well you know because obviously costs is a very important part to us uh, there is a a podcast playlist uh, under my overall playlist on in youtube okay okay so yeah feel <laughs> so free <laughs> I've converted them all into kind of uh, video files, which you can for YouTube. 
yeah. and they're all filed under podcasts under my name as yeah. well. You can file, you can see the Botswana Diamond ones. Uh, you can see even my uh, other companies uh, like the Joburg Ballet, Common Purpose, African Diamonds, Sheffer Gems, which I'm a non-executive director of. I, I'm, I'm very uh, particular in terms of making sure I, I file history so people can actually see what's happened, what I've said previously and what I'm saying now. Yeah, um, I'm, you're certainly ahead of the game with uh, the social media, it seems. <laughs> Um, I think I need to take some notes from you. <laughs> um, alternatively, obviously, that anyone that's got um, wants to ask James any questions, alternatively, you can obviously uh, email myself, which is rob at mining-international.org. Um, thank you for listening. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Um, I do encourage um, guys that are subscribed and, and listening to um, share share this podcast amongst their um, colleagues and friends that are in the in the mining industry. Um, this is a free podcast, and how we can grow this is through word of mouth. Um, so appreciate you can get them to to subscribe. Like I said, it is free, um, and share some of the posts that I do have, um, advertise this podcast on, which is mainly on mainly on LinkedIn and Facebook. Um, because there's obviously the podcast provides a wealth of uh, information and content from industry experts like James um, to, uh, to obviously help and grow uh, a mining professional in terms of your career and catch some of the latest news in the world of mining. So, yeah, really appreciate you guys that, that do subscribe, um, but appreciate if you can uh, spread the word as well. So until next time, happy mining. Thanks for listening to Dig Deep the mining podcast if there are any topics you want discussed or questions you want to ask any guests then you can email us at rob at mining-international.org or you can follow rob and mining international on linkedin facebook twitter and youtube for more content and to have your questions answered until next time happy mining